Amen. We'll open your Bibles, brethren, to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. And if you're able to stand with me for the reading of God's Word, please do so. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. This is God's Word. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. The Lord bless the reading of His Word. You may be seated. We begin a new series this morning as we continue to walk through this wonderful letter of Philippians. And we're titling this new series, Standing Firm in the Gospel. And this series is going to go for about four, five, six weeks. We'll see. It's going to take us through Philippians chapter 3. And along the way, we're going to learn a lot of things, wonderful lessons on how we might be people who stand firm in the Gospel. Well, over the years, as you read and expose yourself to good and healthy Christian books, I'm sure you're this way, there are memorable quotes that sort of stick out to you and stick with you. One of those for me as a pastor is a quote by John Calvin where he says that a pastor ought to have two voices, one voice for gathering the sheep and another voice for warding off and driving away the wolves and the thieves. I like that. I can tell you that over the years it has proven to be true because there's always the impending danger of wolves in the church. Speaking to the Ephesian elders, the Apostle Paul wrote this in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. And he went on to speak of savage wolves who will come in among you not sparing the flock and from among your own selves men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Sobering exhortation. There is always the impending danger of attacks from within the church and always the impending danger of attacks from without. Therefore, be on guard. Be watchful. And this often begins, these attacks begin with false teaching in the church, false doctrine that creeps into the church. And no one understood this more than the Apostle Paul, of this danger of false teachers and false teaching. And so he writes in another letter to the Galatian church, Galatians chapter 1, he writes, But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. And that word accursed there is the idea of rendered to destruction. If you teach another gospel, you teach false doctrine in the church, He says, you ought to be rendered for destruction. That really highlights the reality that teaching false doctrine is a serious matter. And Paul has already alluded to the fact that this is beginning to creep into the church at Philippi as well. Philippians chapter 1, verse 28. He's already begun to allude to these false teachers. And now, as we dive into chapter 3 of Philippians, he makes a clear transition from instructions about unity, about humility, about examples even of godliness, to now this transition of reminding them of false teachers who do the exact opposite of the examples that he has set forth. The example of Jesus and the example of Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus. Here is the opposite of that in chapter 3. 
These verses are very sobering verses. We're reminded here that we never must, we should never let our guard down in the church. That we need to be vigilant. That we need to be watchful and to stand firm in the gospel. You know, it's often said that one generation assumes the gospel and the next generation loses the gospel. If this is true, brethren, at the time of this letter, how much more true is it today? When we have all kinds of counterfeit Gospels being promoted today. So-called Gospels that are counterfeit, that are false Gospels. For example, there's the false Gospel of humanitarianism. Where people believe that feeding the poor and relieving world hunger is the Gospel. Now to be clear, there's the Gospel content. It's a, the Gospel is a message. And then there are Gospel implications. Right? And the gospel has implications for everything, including the relieving of people who are in those situations and, and being merciful and compassionate. But humanitarianism is not the gospel. Ending world hunger is not the gospel. There's the false gospel of positive thinking, where people believe that you are inherently good on the inside and that the power to accomplish everything and anything resides within you. You just have to discover yourself. Right? You, you simply have to discover the power that resides within you and you can accomplish anything for yourself. There's the false gospel of social justice where people downgrade or diminish the gospel and say social justice is the gospel. The idea of equality and ethnic, um, ethnic, uh, ethnic equality in our country, that is the gospel. Again, there's the gospel message and then there are gospel implications. And the gospel certainly has implications for even... People loving one another, right? And uh, from different ethnicities. But social justice is not the gospel itself. There's the false gospel of health, wealth, and prosperity. Where if you take Jesus, you're promised to be given wealth, health, and prosperity. As long as you take Jesus, there is no suffering, there is no pain. All that you, you, you're promised by Him is that you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. So take Jesus. There's the gospel of the false gospel of moralism and legalism, where the gospel is cheapened and diminished to to an adherence to a set of rules or moral standards. The gospel is moralism, they say. But we know that the gospel does not equal moralism. Just case in point, think about the Pharisees in Jesus' day, right? Who basically boiled down everything to these the ex- these external keeping of moral standards and rules and all of that. And Jesus had the strongest words for the religious leaders, the moralist uh, Pharisees. There's also the cheap grace and libertarianism gospel, where God's saving grace doesn't lead to obedience, doesn't lead to holiness. It only leads to people trumping and heralding their, their freedom to live it up, all the while professing allegiance to Jesus and not becoming like Christ. Not pursuing holiness. That's the cheap grace and libertarianism gospel. And so all of these so-called gospels, brethren, are nothing more than counterfeit gospels. They are distortions and perversions of the truth. They are satanic solutions designed to deceive people, to lull people to sleep, to deceive people into thinking, that, to making them feel better about themselves so they don't realize that they are desperately sick with sin and that their greatest need is to be delivered from that sin and from God's judgment for their sin. Furthermore, all of these false gospels are based upon human achievement and human works. They are not the true gospel of grace. 
which looks to Christ for help, which looks to Christ for deliverance rather than to self-help methods and messages. And so this is what Paul is dealing with here in Philippians 3. With great sobriety and gravitas, he now transitions to caution his beloved Philippian brethren and to sound the alarm. This is really a clarion call here, a strong wake-up call to guard the truth of the unadulterated gospel. And there are two overarching exhortations here that he gives. The first one is in verse 1, and the second one is in verse 2. These overarching exhortations are really tied together by his great concern that they stand firm in the gospel. And so I want us to look at these verses together, okay? First of all, we're exhorted here to stand firm in the gospel for your joy depends on it. Stand firm in the gospel for your joy depends on it. Listen, the true gospel is designed to bring joy because when the weight of our sin and the burden of our sin is set aside and is nailed to the cross and removed, there is the joy of forgiveness and reconciliation of deliverance of redemption. Amen? And there's joy that follows. And so his first exhortation is really their joy is what Paul is after. Look at verse 1. He says, finally, it's not that Paul here, by the way, is ending his letter. This is the sense here is so then or now then, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. He says, this is, this, this is something I've said to you before, but I have no problem telling you again, right? In fact, it's for your protection in the light of the present attacks. He says, it's a safeguard for you that I'm about to exhort you again. He says, rejoice, or the sense is keep on rejoicing. Characteristically, as the pattern of your life, believer, keep on rejoicing. Sixteen times in the letter of Philippians, joy or rejoicing rejoice appears. It's a huge emphasis. And the sobering point is quite clear. Christians are people who are characterized by joy, who fight by the grace of God for joy. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. If you have the Spirit of God living inside of you, there are going to be seasons of life and sadness and trials and those kinds of things, right? We understand that. But characteristically, as the pattern of your life, if the Spirit is living in you, Galatians 5.22 says that the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy. Christians are called to be joyful people who have the Holy Spirit living inside of them. Romans 14 and verse 17 says that the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. And there he's addressing legalism. Some people were making Christianity about what kinds of foods you partook of or not. And Paul says the kingdom of God is not about those things. It's about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Kingdom-minded people are people who are joyful people and who fight for joy. In John chapter 15, verse 11, the Lord Jesus tells His disciples that His words are spoken so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Jesus spoke His words in John 15 because He wanted His disciples to experience fullness of joy, complete joy, rather than sadness. 1 John 1, verse 4. The Apostle John says that everything written in 1 John is for the express purpose that our joy may be made full or complete. You know, we often think about 1 John as a, a letter of tests. Tests to see if you're really in Christ. But he actually tells us in 1 John 1 for what the purpose of the book of 1 John is. It's so that you might be assured of, 
of your position in Christ and that you might have great joy, fullness of joy. And the Psalms are full of verses which call us to be people of joy and gladness. Psalm 100, shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Psalm 16, verse 11, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. So there are literally hundreds of verses in the Psalms calling on God's people to be people of joy. To be people who rejoice. However, if you've lived the Christian life long enough, then you know that there are many things that tend to rob us of our joy. Amen? Many things rob us of our joy. What kinds of things? Well, a guilt-ridden conscience can rob us of joy. When we have unconfessed sin, right? God will not allow us to experience joy. And by the way, don't see that as an act of judgment. See that as an act of grace. That God will not allow you to be comfortable. God will not allow you to experience the benefits of your salvation if you're truly in Christ, if you are living in sin. If you have a guilt-ridden conscience over unconfessed secret sin, bitterness and unforgiveness towards others can rob us of joy. In the home, in the church, when we are not practicing forgiveness and extending forgiveness and seeking forgiveness, that can rob us of joy. Irreconciled relationships. Disobedience can rob us of joy. Right? That's part of the point of 1 John again. If you walk in obedience and you don't compromise in your life, then you're going to experience the joy of the, of the Lord. The joy of the Spirit of God. Unfavorable circumstances can rob us of joy. When we don't respond the way that we should and trust God in the midst of our trials. James chapter 1 says to consider it all joy when we experience various trials. When we don't respond to our trials the right way, we can be robbed of joy as well. All of the godlessness and hatred that we see around us can rob us of our joy, right? I don't know if you saw the Kansas City Chiefs won the Super Bowl recently. Did you see what happened at the parade? Right? Shooting and people were injured. I believe that there was one person dead. I mean, some of that stuff can really rob us of our joy, right? A lot of sad stuff in our world, in a broken world. There's plenty to be sad about in a broken, fallen world that eats away at our joy. And if we don't recall the big picture of the gospel and what God is doing in this world to create a new heavens and a new earth by virtue of the cross of Christ, then we can be robbed of our joy. And so these and many other things can rob us of rejoicing or joy in our lives. And this is why, brethren, it is so important, isn't it? by the grace of God, to look outside of these things. To be reminded that our joy is not dependent on any of these things. That it's not about the here and now, it's about the then and there. That's why Colossians 3 says that we need to set our minds on the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Not on the things on earth. And so we see this in our text here. I want you to note the ever-important little prepositional phrase in verse 1. In the Lord. You see that? In the Lord. That little prepositional phrase is pregnant with meaning. It signifies that, that the realm of our joy is not in other things. It is in the Lord. That the source and the basis of our joy is in Christ. That our joy is rooted in the relationship that we have with Jesus, in our union with Christ, in our connection, our vital connection with Christ. In the Lord or in Christ, we have salvation from our sin. 
In the Lord, we've been rescued from God's judgment and from hell and condemnation. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus or in the Lord. In the Lord, we now have forgiveness of sins and reconciliation by faith in Jesus with the Father. In the Lord, now we have power over sin's grip and power over sin's domination over our lives. In the Lord, we now have um, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That's Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. And everything that pertains to life and godliness, that's 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. In the Lord or in Christ, God now sees us as He sees Christ, and we are now His adopted children, no longer His enemies, no longer strangers to God. We are now His adopted children. That's Romans chapter 8, verse 16. In the Lord, we now have the third person of the triune God living in us to encourage us and to comfort us and to convict us of our sin. The precious, mighty Holy Spirit. He is the guarantee of our future possession and inheritance. That's Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14. In the Lord, we are no longer walking through life alone, but now we have church family. Other believers who are in Christ, we are one unified spiritual family, and now we're in partnership with one another, doing ministry together, and we've been in the Lord, gifted spiritually speaking, to be able to serve Christ with one another. In the Lord or in Christ, we now have a future hope, brethren. So that, you know, as our achy and decaying bodies are being made new in the future, right? And being glorified, we now have great hope, don't we? That's 1 Corinthians 15, which talks about the, the resurrection of our bodies. Because Christ rose from the dead, we who are in Christ will one day be raised physically, visibly, and given a glorified body. Think about that. That's all in the Lord, in Christ. This and many other things we have in the Lord or in Christ. You see why Paul says rejoice in the Lord, in Christ? Not in these other things that are passing away. The world is passing away. And also it's lusts, right? But the one who does the will of God abides forever. Those who are in the Lord. True lasting joy won't be found in favorable circumstances. Just look at Paul. His joy wasn't based upon favorable circumstances from a human perspective. Where is he at? He's on house arrest. He's in jail, right? Lasting joy won't be found in financial prosperity. In chapter 4, he'll get into this. He says, it's all about contentment for me. He says, I've experienced uh, uh, poverty. I've experienced prosperity. He says, at the end of the day, it's not even about the gift that you're giving me. He says, it's about the blessing upon you because of your generosity. He says, it's not about those things for me. I'm content in Christ, right? I can do all things through in Christ who strengthens me. So joy is not found in any of these things. Good physical health. You fill in the blank what you tend to root your joy in, brothers and sisters. If you root your joy in any of these things, you'll live in a perpetual state of discouragement, of disappointment, of deflation, feeling like God has given you the short end of the stick. All of those things that we place our our hope in are all sinking sand apart from Christ, right? On Christ a solid rock I stand, says the song. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Isn't that true? I'm sure you've experienced that. Our experience of joy depends on our God-given ability to stand firm in the Gospel of God's saving grace, brethren, and to relish and to feast upon what we have as far as spiritual riches go in Christ Jesus. 
True joy, Jonathan Edwards. He says this about true joy. The enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here on earth. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends are only but shadows. But God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the ocean. I like that. I like that gladness and joy is found in the Lord. That's why Paul says rejoice in Him. Rejoice in the Lord. And so note this. Paul is not just trying to pick a fight over minor peripheral issues here, especially in his exhortations in verse 2. Their experience of joy depends on their ability to root that joy in Christ and in the real true gospel. And not succumb to the Kool-Aid, right? The false teaching Kool-Aid of the false teachers. And so secondly, note what he says in verse 2. And we derive this principle. Stand firm in the gospel for there are always attacks. That's your second point. Stand firm in the gospel for there are always attacks. Knowing that there's always the impending danger of false teaching, right? That's going to rob you of your joy. Paul exhorts them and exhorts us here. Beware of the dogs, he says in verse 2. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. Notice that threefold warning there in caution. Three times he says, beware, beware, beware. The ESV puts it, look out, look out, look out. Question, why not just say beware of the dogs, the evil workers, and the false circumcision? Why not just say it once and be done with it? Right? Well, it's deliberate. The repetition is meant to underscore the seriousness and the gravitas, brethren, of this matter of false teaching in the church. Now, if this is such a serious matter, and it is, then who's Paul talking about? Who's he referring to here? Who are these false teachers who are disturbing the faith of these Philippian brethren and distorting the gospel? Who are they? Well, in the first century, there was a group of Jews in those days who became known as the Judaizers. The Judaizers. We first learned of this group of Jews who professed belief in Christ and the Messiah in Acts chapter 15, verse 1, where it says there that some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brethren, teaching Christians, believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And so note, these, these were Jews who professed faith in Jesus as the Messiah, but they also taught that you need something more to complete your salvation in essence. It's good that you have Jesus. That's a great start. We're not denying that. But you also need to add adherence to certain aspects of the Mosaic Law, to observe certain rituals, to celebrate certain ceremonies. And at the top of the list, you need to be circumcised if you're a man. You must be circumcised. Now, if you've been doing your Bible reading and you read about circumcision back in Genesis chapter 17, remember that? Circumcision. And you read about how that was the sign, circumcision was the sign of the Old Testament covenant. It was the symbol or the sign that you were part of the covenant people of God under the Old Testament. Every baby boy had to be circumcised on the eighth day after they were born. In fact, there was punishment if you were not. If you were a 
male. Remember what almost happened to Moses when he forgot to circumcise his son, his baby son? It says in Exodus chapter 4, verse 24, that the Lord met Moses and sought to put him to death. Moses had forgotten to circumcise his little, his little munchkin, you know? His little baby boy. And remember the, the sweet wife Zipporah, what she did? Moses' very kind wife takes a knife, circumcises the baby boy, and she proceeds to throw the skin at Moses' feet. Remember that? And frustrated, she says, you are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. She was quite the sweet and loving wife, Zipporah. But on a serious note, it does highlight the seriousness of obeying the Lord in circumcising your son under the Old Covenant. And it was a good thing. Circumcision was a good thing under the Old Covenant. God commanded it. In fact, the law of Moses, according to Paul in 1 Timothy 1.8, is good, is a good thing, right? Don't ever separate the, the laws of God from the lawgiver. So it's not evil what God gave, right? The problem was this. This was the problem. It wasn't God's law that was the issue. It was that Judaism eventually became a religion largely based upon interpretive tradition and external ritual devoid of heart. That was the problem. Furthermore, over time it became an exclusivistic religion that failed to recognize that God's plans all along included the Gentiles who by faith in the Jewish Messiah could be part of the people of God. They also somehow missed the fact that more important than the outward sign of flesh or body circumcision was heart circumcision. That what God was always after was the heart change, right? And not just mere external ritual. And that's where they went wrong, even the utmost, in that they rejected Christ, the one who could make that heart change. That was the issue, and these were the problems. Not the law in and of itself. And so ultimately, these Judaizers were teaching a, a counterfeit gospel that went beyond the one true gospel of grace alone in Christ alone. Dangerous. Nothing new under the sun, brethren. They taught a gospel of works, not a gospel of grace. And in fact, in another place, dealing with the same essential issue, Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ has come to fulfill the law for everyone who believes. And even that is a gift of God. Faith or belief. And in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, it says that the law's function is, is our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith, not by the works of the law. Again, Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.8 that the law is good. Why? Because God gave His law. It's good. But the law was given to put God's holiness on display and to show us our inability to keep the law perfectly. To what end? So that we would look to Christ by faith alone. Because we're not able to keep the law perfectly. Christ fulfilled the law on our behalf. And His righteousness is given to us when we put our trust in Christ. His righteousness is imputed, wrecking to our account. And so this matter of protecting the purity of the Gospel was serious to Paul. So serious that when even Peter got caught up at one point being influenced by these guys, it says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, that Peter rebuked, or Paul rebuked Peter to his face and lovingly let him have it. Thankfully, of course, Peter didn't keep going that, down that erroneous path. 
But this teaching was very dangerous. Well, fast forward to Philippians, and it's this group of false teachers, the Judaizers, who is the group that Paul is referring to here and cautioning the Philippians about. Don't drink the Kool-Aid. And to accentuate the seriousness of the matter, look at verse 2, how Paul describes these false teachers. He says they are dogs, evil workers. They are the false circumcision, literally the mutilation is the idea there. He's not pulling any punches with them, is he? He says, beware of the dogs. Watch out. Look out for the dogs, right? Now today, this is very hard for us to identify with this terminology because we love our puppies, don't we? We love our dogs. We love our puppies. We did too until a wretched coyote took out our little French bulldog before we came here to Washington. I know, the bummer. We love our dogs. We love our puppies. We even have pet hospitals. We even have pet spas so that you can send your dog away on a luxury vacation, you know? So it's hard for us to identify with what Paul is saying here, but in those days, dogs were different. Dogs were savage, filthy animals who ate their own vomit, who were running around getting into every trash dump possible. They were violent, often attacking people. As long as you stood on your own two feet, you were okay. But if you fell or you were injured, they will kill you and eat you. Dogs in the olden days. And eventually the term dog was used in a derogatory way. The Jewish self-righteous religious leaders would refer to Gentiles, non-Jews in this way, as dogs. Not by God's instructions, by the way. And so the term a dog became metaphorical for or derogatory, but it was also metaphorical for impurity and for moral uncleanness. Because that's what dogs were. So therefore, they referred to Gentiles as morally impure, morally unclean. Well, Paul takes that metaphor and applies it to these false teachers. He doesn't say, brethren, hey guys, be loving to these guys. They really mean well. They just don't know better. No, he says, beware of the dogs. Beware of them. Look out. Paul is like a loving, protective father who upon seeing a a vicious pit bull out for blood uh, is ready to put his life on the line for his son or his daughter, right? That's the picture here. He's a protective shepherd. He says, beware of the dogs. They're dangerous, these false teachers. And he says, beware of the evil workers. These, These are false teachers, Paul says, who are doing evil works. There's works done for the glory of God, works done for the glory of God and for the good of others that are wonderful things to encourage. He says these guys are doing evil works. What do these evil works consist of? Where they're promoting a system of belief designed to get you to earn God's favor by your good works. They are laying heavy burdens upon people that people cannot carry, namely their sin. Only Christ could do that. He says they're evil workers. And then finally he adds... Beware of the false circumcision. The false circumcision. Listen to this. The Greek word for circumcision is a word peritomy. Peritomy literally means to cut around. That's the word for circumcision. He will use that word, by the way, in verse 3. But the word that he uses here in verse 2 is katatomy, which literally means to cut through or having the idea of cutting something to pieces. This is why the ESV has it as, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. This is sobering here, what he's saying. 
Paul viewed this danger so seriously that it's as if he's saying these guys pride themselves on the fact that they are the true people of God by virtue of the circumcision. What they are is actually the mutilation or the castration, he says. That's what they are. They are the false circumcision. And the picture here is of ancient pagan idol worshippers who would literally cut themselves or mutilate their body parts in order to get the attention of their pagan deities. As in the days of Elijah. Remember Elijah? Hey guys, why don't you, right, pagan idol worshippers, why don't you guys call upon your gods and I'll call upon my God and see who answers. And no matter what they did, their gods weren't answering, right? So what eventually they start doing? Cutting themselves, bleeding all over the place because they weren't getting answers from their pagan idols. Because they don't exist. And so what Paul is saying here is that their teaching of salvation by circumcision is no sign at all, but precisely the opposite. It's good old-fashioned pagan worship. That's what he's saying. And in their false teaching, what they are actually doing is cutting themselves off from having a place in God's community. Their teaching is spiritual destruction and spiritual mutilation. Paul essentially says this in Galatians 5.12, dealing with the same individuals. I wish that those who are troubling you, Galatian believers, these false teachers, would even mutilate themselves. Why don't you just go all the way, he says, and just emasculate yourselves? Strong words. This is how serious false teaching is, right? Again, please note the severity and the no-nonsense approach that Paul takes to false teaching and to false teachers in the church. He doesn't say, hey guys, reach out to these poor people, you know, these evil workers, those who are of the false circumcision. I want you to think the best about them. Think the best. They got it mostly right. They're almost there. You know, there is some truth in what they say. They're just a little bit off. He doesn't say that. And by the way, make the distinction here. He's not talking about folks who don't know better, who are ignorant. He's not talking about people who you might be witnessing to, who want to know what the Scriptures say about something. He's not talking about individuals like that. He's not talking about people who are sincerely wanting to understand truth. We should always do our best as Christians with people who clearly do not know better or folks who are asking, right? To, for us to give them a reason for the hope that is in us. We should give them an answer, right? Yet with gentleness and reverence, says Peter. So This is very different here. It's good for us to witness to people and to come alongside of people and give them answers and do it in gentleness and grace because we, after all, right, had somebody come to us or people speak into our lives in that way. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for somebody coming alongside of us. But brethren, Paul is not talking about that. He's talking about false teachers. False teachers who are contradicting the gospel of God's saving grace. So what's the big deal? Souls are at stake. Heaven and hell hang in the balance. And the Philippians' joy is at stake if they succumb to this teaching that's going to rob them of their joy in Christ and the sufficiency of Christ, that Christ is enough apart from anything, any works of the law or human achievement. There are only two primary belief systems in the world. Did you know that? Two primary uh, belief systems in the world. Two worldviews, ultimately. There is the religion of self-achievement, 
And there is the, the, the gospel of grace. There is the religion of self-achievement and there is the gospel of grace. There is salvation by works. Your God or God's plus whatever He requires of you, do these things and you can find self-justification for your own life, right? That's human achievement. Or there is salvation by grace which says nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. Naked, naked, Come to Thee for dress. Helpless, look to Thee for grace. There's that Gospel of grace that says I can't do anything to earn God's favor. It's all by grace. It's all by God's unmerited, undeserved favor found in Jesus Christ that I can be forgiven, that I can be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus. Right? I love the definition of grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. I love that. Grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. That's the gospel of grace. But then, there is a type of self-salvation. Of self-actualization. Of self-fulfillment. Self-deliverance. Which says that in some way, shape, or form, I can actually achieve my salvation. However you define salvation or deliverance in your religious world system. I can achieve this. I can achieve some kind of utopia with the God of my own creation. And perhaps that God is even me, right? There is a type of false religion, brethren, that says in some way, shape, or form, I can actually be self-justified. I can achieve self-deification. This is destructive and distorted deliverance based upon human achievement. It's works-based self-salvation. Beware of these counterfeit religions and ideologies today that offer happiness and hope, but in the end, they are bitter as wormwood and they do not deliver, right? They don't deliver. And so I say to us today, beware of those who distort the gospel of grace. Beware of Roman Catholicism. Beware of Roman Catholicism. That teaches that somehow you can complete your faith or contribute to your faith by keeping the Mass, the sacraments, you name it. And that teaches the damning doctrine of purgatory. Beware of Roman Catholicism. There is no salvation if you adopt the doctrines of Roman Catholicism. Beware of the New Age movement rooted in Eastern religious mysticism. It is a pantheistic religion of many gods, the worship of many gods, the New Age movement. Believing that all is God, therefore you and I are also God. It is self-worship of the mighty self rather than looking to the one true God by faith in Jesus, right? Beware of the New Age movement. Beware of Jehovah's Witnesses and Muslims and Mormons who distort the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, not believing that He's fully God, but only a great created being, right? A great prophet, a great teacher, a great humanitarian, a distorted view of the person and the work of Jesus' brethren leaves people hopeless for only Christ alone qualifies to be Redeemer and Deliverer because of the fact that He is the God-man. Who He is qualifies to be the sole, only Redeemer. So you can't say that Jesus is a downgraded version of God and say He's my Savior. He doesn't qualify to be your Savior because He's not God in your, in your view. Beware of ideologies which go beyond what stands written in the Word of God. Brethren, this is a, 
a time to practice discernment. To know what the Word says so well that you're able to distinguish between what is good and evil and between what is good and best. Right? Discernment. The ability to distinguish between what is good and evil and between what is good and best in accordance with God's Word. Hear the, hear the threefold command of 1 Thessalonians 5.21. Write that text down. 1 Thessalonians 5.21. We should all memorize it. It says, But examine everything carefully. Examine is the word dokimazo, to test something for the sake of approval. He says, examine, test everything for the sake of approval carefully, he says. Hold fast to that which is good. In other words, cling to that which is good. Don't let it go. How do we know what is good? It's in God's Word, right? God's Word defines that which is intrinsically beneficial for you. That is good. And then he says, abstain from every form or appearance of evil. Refrain. Keep away from every form or appearance of evil. Don't be a naive Christian. Don't be a Christian who drinks the Kool-Aid of the ideologies in our world system right now. It's like when you receive an Amazon package, right? What do you do with your Amazon packages? I would assume that you open it, that you examine your Amazon package, you make doubly sure that it's exactly what you ordered, right? Because you paid money for it, well-earned money. You want to make sure that that package contains the exact product and brand and all of that that you ordered. Isn't that what we do with our packages? Brethren, it's the same with ideas that are being handed to us. Packages of ideas. Open them. Examine them. Test them. Put them through the grid of the Word of God. Take them through the grid of Scripture. Right? That are being, these packages that are being offered to you. Test them by the Word. Examine the validity of these the tr- uh, and truthfulness of these things. We need to practice discernment as a people of God. Whenever we compromise the gospel, brethren, then we will be robbed of our joy. Paul did not want his, his, his wonderful brethren, his Philippian brothers and sisters in Christ, to be robbed of the gospel of grace by these false teachers so that they, would, they were robbed of their joy. We need to be people who stand firm in the gospel as well. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, thank You. Thank You for the truthfulness of Your Word that doesn't leave us wondering and confused and lacking clarity. Thank You for the clarity of Your truth and for the fact that even passages like these exist, Father, to remind us of the fact that we must always be vigilant, always be watchful, always be people who are standing firm, defending the truth with grace and mercy and compassion, yes, but even with regards to false teaching and false teachers, may we be firm and may we be definitive, Father, not allowing ourselves to be swayed by those who seek, a, seek to rob us of our joy that we have in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.